0: This is Backstory, I'm Peter Ronov. For months, the mood around a certain pontiff's trip to the U.S. this month has been ecstatic.
1: And the countdown of Pope Francis' first visit to the United States is on. We're gonna tell you how-
0: But a hundred years ago, America's relationship with Pope Leo Thirteenth was a bit frostier. He chastised Catholics in the U.S. for being too American.
2: So then that presents a particular challenge for people who want to be both good Catholics and good Americans.
0: Today on Backstory, Catholics in America. From the complex legacy of a Native American saint to a time when being Catholic could get you run out of town.
3: They broke down the door of the convent. They took torches to the curtains and they set the place on fire.
0: Coming up on Backstory, Catholics in America. Don't go away. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia
4: Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory
5: with the American History Guys.
0: Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bello. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Peter Onoff. Over the past few weeks, you may have heard news stories like this one.
1: Pope Francis is hugely popular among Catholics in the U.S. Still, his visit this month will not be without controversy. That's because the Pope plans to make the priest Junipero
2: Sarah a saint.
0: That's a report eight, seven, from NPR noting Sarah that I Pope Francis' decision to canonize Junipero Sarah in Washington, D.C. is raising a few eyebrows. Sarah biographer Stephen Hackle says the Spanish missionary isn't an obvious choice for a saint. He's a polarizing figure, even among Catholics. Many people see him as a exemplar
6: of a life of Catholic devotion. Others see him sort of as California's Columbus, as the person who's responsible for all the ills and tragedies of the period of European conquest and afterwards.
0: Junipero Serra first arrived in California in 1769 after spending two decades as a missionary in Spanish Mexico. Spain was interested in colonizing Upper
6: California, the region north of Baja California on the Pacific coast. And Serra is an extraordinarily ambitious missionary. He's very experienced, and he spearheads Spain's movement into what is now the state of California.
0: Hackle says Sarah's northward journey also included what he saw as a spiritual goal.
6: He wants to work with Indians who have never been baptized, who have never spoken Spanish, who he thinks are sort of like um, children in the Garden of Eden. And it isn't until 1769 that he actually meets Indians who he believes fit that description. And he is so overcome, he essentially kisses the ground and he says they're just like Adam before the fall.
0: Sarah went on to build nine Catholic missions across California, believing that the natives could only become proper Catholics if they worked and lived in his missions. The converted Indians attended mass and catechism under the watchful eye of mission priests and were forced to adopt European-style farming. And within this system, Hackle says, Sarah was a tough administrator.
6: Sarah was not a warm and fuzzy guy. I mean, he was a very, very, very hard-headed, aggressive
0: imperial priest. The Indians in the missions were expected, above all, to obey. They had to ask the friar's permission just to leave the premises. If Indians strayed, if they left the mission to visit
6: relatives who hadn't been baptized, they could be punished with the flogging, with blows. And this was upsetting, distressing, painful, offensive, and unacceptable. But Sarah believes that this is absolutely necessary for the development as sort of civilized Catholic
0: individuals. Sarah died in 1784, but the mission system he pioneered grew for decades with horrendous effects on native populations. Missionaries forced Indians to abandon many of their cultural traditions, while European diseases devastated the local tribes. It's no surprise, then, that Native Americans have been protesting Sarah's sainthood. Here's Chumash Indian Georgiana Sanchez on Al Jazeera a few weeks ago.
3: You could be flogged ten times for a bad attitude. A lot of people died. What kind of saint
1: would allow that?
6: I mean, it it has been a shock to many of us that that this pope who seems to be very enlightened and very open to people's suffering would want to canonize him.
0: Hackle says the big question isn't whether Cerro was a sinner or a saint. He thinks the more interesting question is why Pope Francis and Vatican officials would want to canonize such a controversial figure. The answer, Hackle suspects, is about messaging. They believe that there is a um, very... A pernicious
6: wave of anti-immigration in North America. And I think, you know, Donald Trump couldn't have come at a better time for this because he speaks to all of the negative stereotypes
0: that people hold to immigrants in California and elsewhere. Hackle thinks Sarah gives the church an opportunity to teach Americans a history lesson, one that focuses on Catholics. Because I think that our national
6: history, our early American history, is really a story of 13 English colonies that struck as one led by Protestants who created a nation state and it's, it's a very kind of East Coast centered nation state story and there's very little room in that story for people who are Latino, Hispanic and of course Catholic. The idea is that long before there were Anglo-Americans there were Catholics Hispanic missionaries and I think what they want to do is help us move towards a more diversified understanding of our early American history.
4: That diverse, complex understanding of Catholics in American history is what we'll be exploring on the show today. We'll hear how fake exposés of convent life riled up 19th-century New England. We'll also explore what has made the American Catholic experience distinct from its Roman Catholic roots. And we'll chat with Catholic sisters
5: living a life of prayer in an American monastery. But first, Spanish Franciscans weren't the only Catholics to colonize parts of North America. In the 1600s, French Jesuits set up missions across what is today the Northeast U.S. and parts of Canada. Like Junipero Serra's legacy in California, the Catholic Church's relationship with indigenous tribes there remains complex. But that complexity isn't just embodied in colonizers like Sarah. It's on display in the story of Gadidi de Gaguita, who was born in 1656 near the present-day village of Fonda, New York. Producer Bruce Wallace went there to trace her story.
6: The Lord be with you.
7: And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew.
2: Glory
7: to you. In many ways, the so Mass at St. Peter's Chapel Jesus is pretty Christ typical. About, Fifteen congregants take in a Mary gospel reading, file to the front to receive communion, Alleluia, and join in prayer and a hymn. Alleluia. 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 But the chapel's visual cues hinted a less typical Catholic story. To the right of the altar, a painting depicts a Native American origin tale. The altar itself is draped with a rug woven in orange and red geometric patterns, and a big framed drum sits beneath it. And then, on the wall right behind the priest, a painting of an indigenous woman clasping a rosary and holding her hands in prayer. This is St. Gadidi de Gaguita. The chapel is part of a shrine to her. Friar Mark Steed arrived five years ago to oversee it. And I was here for a couple of years,
6: and then all of a sudden, the pope decided to canonize Blessed Gadidi. He must have heard we were fixing up the shrine. I figured that's the only reason he wanted to do it. So, <laughs>
7: There were a few other reasons, too. We'll get to those in a bit. The shrine sits here because Degoguita was born nearby in 1656. There's a museum below the chapel and an archaeological site that some think are remains of one of Degoguita's childhood homes. After a museum tour, volunteer Helen Carpenter points me toward the site.
8: Go to the top of the hill, and then you have to cross the road. Okay, don't forget to cross (laughs) her. And be careful. (laughs) Okay, the spring is over to the right, and we had uh, Jake Finkbonner was here. In
7: 2006, Finkbonner, a kid in Washington State who's part Native American, recovered from a life-threatening bacteria after his supporters prayed to Degaguita. The Vatican ruled it a miracle, a major step on her road to canonization
8: and he actually was reaching down into the water to kind of make contact with the person who had helped to heal him.
7: Much is unknown about the woman Finkbonner reached out to at this spring. Here's some of what we do know. De Guguita's mother and brother died from smallpox when she was six years old. The disease left her nearly blind and her face badly scarred. French missionaries set up shop in her village in 1667, and eight years later, she joined a wave of indigenous conversion to Catholicism. Soon after, she followed that wave to an Iroquois missionary settlement near present-day Montreal. Alan Greer, a McGill University historian and Degaguita biographer, says her relationship with the French missionaries was different than you might expect. It's not just imitating the colonizer.
9: It's not submitting to the colonizer. It is trying to appropriate
7: that which looks useful. Degoguita and a group of fellow female indigenous converts discovered a Catholicism not seen from the pews, a mystical, ascetic faith practiced by people with special knowledge. And that was the knowledge they wanted.
9: These Iroquois women were not satisfied with the role of lay people who accepted the spiritual leadership of priests. They wanted to get
7: what the priests had and what the nuns had. So they interviewed former patients of a nearby missionary hospital and learned about the self-depriving practices of the nuns there. Then they mimicked them, going without food and sleep, sometimes whipping themselves. Dekaguita added mohawk-inflected rituals too, including burning herself with hot coals, similar to a practice warriors used to prepare for battle.
9: So here we have
7: indigenous
9: North American women drawing on both European and Native American cultural roots to create their own spiritual practices.
7: Degaguita died in 1680 at the age of 24, likely a result of these hardships inflicted on a body already weakened by her earlier bout of smallpox. A Jesuit missionary who had been with her in her dying moments spent the next 15 years researching her life and promoting her as a saint. At
9: first, this seems like a preposterous idea, Because the whole colonial enterprise, and I'm talking about, you know, Spanish, Portuguese, French, uh, etc., is predicated on the assumption that Europeans are spiritually superior to, you know, savage
7: heathens. The effort languished until the late 1800s. By this time, de roots in New York had been rediscovered, and the U.S. Catholic Church was looking for some heroes. It was a time of deep anti-Catholic sentiment, when many associated the faith with poor immigrants crowding into urban slums. Degaguita, of course, represented the opposite. In 1884, a letter to the Vatican from American church leaders set her on the long road to canonization. Not surprisingly, the indigenous people in Ganawage, the Canadian missionary settlement where Degaguita died, have mixed feelings about her. Irinda Boucher is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Ottawa and is writing her dissertation about Degaguita.
2: The few times I asked people in my community, my elders, about who she was, they rolled their eyes and said, oh, I don't want to talk about her because she's one of them. And I understood pretty early on that people saw her as a problematic figure that we had never fully dealt with.
7: Boucher thinks the indigenous residents of Ganawage should deal with her. In the last half century, many in her community have left the Catholic faith and started re-examining elements of Native spirituality. She sees Deku Guita as a guide to inhabiting both Catholic and indigenous worlds.
2: She never fully got away from living in the Longhouse. She was adding on to it with this Catholicism. So I think that by reclaiming her narrative and reclaiming her story is part of my way of decolonizing um, history and trying to understand why or how we ended up in this particular situation that we're in now. She's, she's sort of the conduit for all of that for me.
7: Since the canonization, Friar Mark Steed, director of the shrine in Fonda, New York, has started to think about how his Franciscans can work more fully with American Indians, both the ones that lived down the road and the ones that lived up on the hill back in Deguguita's day.
6: We've got a lot of people who come in here and they said, I don't, I don't believe what's here. There's something here I just can't put my finger on. And I said, well, if you really want to put your finger on it, go up to the dig. That's where they lived. One woman came back and she said, I had to get out of there, so I was frightened to death. She said, I I felt like they were all around me. I said, they were. (laughs) It's their land. They believe that those spirits are still alive, and, and so do we.
5: Bruce Wallace brought us that story. Earlier, we heard from Stephen Hackle, a historian at the University of California, Riverside. His book is Junipero Serra, California's founding father.
0: It's time for us to take a short break, but stay with us when we get back. A genre of 19th century literature is born in a discredited exposé about nuns. You're listening to Backstory. We'll
4: be
5: right back. We're back with Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Peter Onoff. And I'm Brian Bellow. Today, we're marking Pope Francis's historic trip to the U.S. with stories of Catholics in American history. Throughout the early 19th century, large numbers of Catholics immigrated to the U.S. They came from Germany and Ireland, with a huge uptick of Irish in the 1840s. The Protestant presence across the United States often meant any Catholics were met with staunch resistance in the form of everything from the written word
0: to mob violence. Let's take a moment to explore an example of both. In the early 1830s, a young woman named Rebecca Reed hit the lecture circuit in New England, regaling crowds with her strange tales. The topic? Her six months as a Roman Catholic nun. Reed had lived at an Ursuline convent in Charlestown, Massachusetts, before she ran away. The elegant brick building sat on the top of a hill, a tiny island of Catholicism in a Protestant sea. Reed's lectures
4: were basically horror stories. Her Protestant audiences devoured details of abusive nuns and bizarre Catholic rituals. The stories reinforced deeply held prejudices against Catholics that stretched back decades in New England. But they also fed local resentment of the pristine convent overlooking the town. And when rumors started circulating that another nun had escaped and then was forcibly returned, a Protestant mob decided that it had heard enough.
3: On the night of August 11, 1834, a crowd of men gathered in front of the gates of the convent.
4: This is historian Nancy Schultz.
3: And they broke down the door of the convent and they streamed in. They had torches and they threw pianos out the window. They threw the furniture out the window. They took torches to the curtains, and they set the place on fire.
4: So I'm taking that there were not police there to stop this?
3: No. In fact, the fire department showed up on the night that the convent was attacked. They estimate that there were two to 4,000 people outside of the convent. And none of the firemen made any move to spray water or to try to stop the fire.
4: The horror of the convent's burning did nothing to temper the anti-Catholic mood in New England. In the wake of the destruction, Rebecca Reed actually gained an even larger audience by publishing a memoir about her convent life. Her book was an instant hit and inspired a host of imitators. Schultz says that Reed launched a new genre of 19th century American literature, the convent exposé.
3: This was a very popular genre. Throughout the 19th century, they were kind of the supermarket literature of the day. And there were several, I would say almost a dozen, anti-Catholic convent captivity narratives published in the 19th century.
4: But Rebecca Reed was kind of the first of these.
3: Yes. Her book is called Six Months in a Convent. And it was published in 1835. And it was most likely ghostwritten by a group of male supporters. A lot of these uh. convent captivity narratives, the women were not literate enough to put a book together. So these were pretty much books written by male committees. And
4: and what defined her book and the others in the genre that followed? What, what would we expect to find if we opened this up at the supermarket?
3: By standards of popular literature, hers is, Rebecca Reed's book is fairly tame. You know, she details a Catholic ritual, such as licking the floor for penance, or having to kneel for several hours a day. And it's, it's really focused on rituals of the mass and what actually happens inside a convent. Because, This was really a subject of of fascination for people. Right, right. The closed Catholic convent and the confessional, those were secret spaces that, to the Protestant mind, were foreign. So were people satisfied by her account? Did
4: they find it exciting and titillating?
3: The book sold a lot of copies, 10,000 in the first week, over 200,000 altogether, wow. 200,000 copies. 200,000
4: so, copies would have made it one of the best-selling books by a woman in 19th century America, right? Yes. Yeah. But it was not the best-selling book because it was followed very quickly by another book in the genre which sort of turns up the the lurid aspects of things quite a bit. Can you tell us about that book?
3: Yes, this one is called The Awful Disclosures of Mariah Monk, and that was published in 1836. And Mariah Monk wrote a very steamy exposé of a convent with tunnels dug underneath between the convent and the rectory where priests can have easy access to the women in the convent. Uh, She describes the murder of a nun who refused the advances of a priest. All the nuns in the convent put a mattress on top of her and got on top of it and jumped on the, on the mattress until she suffocated. She described a pit in the basement of the convent, a lime pit where they would baptize the babies born to the women and then murder them and throw them in the lime pit. Wow.
4: So was this also ghostwritten?
3: Yes. Hmm. This was written by a committee.
4: And these are men who are writing this?
3: yes. Most of the evidence points to the fact that she was never a nun at all, that she had been a prostitute, and the baby that she purported had been fathered by a Catholic priest, which she said motivated her escape. She wanted to save the life of her child. Most evidence suggests that that baby had been um, the offspring of a Montreal policeman.
4: Oh, gosh. But in the meantime, people are snatching these things up and believing them, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So what was the effect of these books other than selling a lot? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did they have social consequences?
3: Well, they did have social consequences um, because what we see through the beginning of the 19th century is kind of a a mounting current of anti-Catholicism. And so the convent burning in 1834... And these two convent captivity narratives kind of fertilized the soil for even more anti-Catholicism. And you see in the 1840s, dozens of anti-Catholic newspapers being founded and widely read. And what this anti-Catholicism shows is that even as we extend welcome, we often deeply fear the other and this idea of how do we assimilate? How do we assimilate difference? I think this is still the essential question of American culture, and we struggle with this today.
4: Nancy Schultz teaches at Salem State University and is the author of Fire and Roses, The Burning of the Charlestown Convent, 1834.
0: The convent exposés you just heard about were popular in part because most Protestants in the 19th century had no idea what actually went on behind convent walls. But it made us realize, a century and a half later, we didn't
5: either. As it turns out, there's a Trappist monastery down the road from our studios in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's one of just 17 across the country. So I took a trip out there with our producer, Emily Gaddick.
10: All right, here we go.
5: Our Lady of the Angels sits at the end of a dirt road. It's on the edge of the forest in the Blue Ridge Mountains. The building, it's nothing fancy. It looks like the kind of two-story brick church you might see in a new suburb.
7: Hello.
3: Hi.
5: (laughs) Thirteen sisters live in the monastery. We spoke to four of them. Sister Barbara, who helped found the convent in the late 1980s. Sister Sophie, who came from India, Sister Maria, originally from Spain, and Sister Kathy, who joined the community after serving in the United States Air Force for 15 years.
1: I'm entering my 15th year in the monastery, so I've now been in the monastery as long as I was uh, on active duty, and um, it's... it's...
5: I know you don't say Mazel Tov, but congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Is, Is that in order?
1: Thank you, yes.
5: It's no surprise that the sisters' lives were nothing like the horrors Rebecca Reed detailed in the 1830s. Much of their daily life in that monastery revolves around prayer. Sister Barbara told us that their day begins at 3 a.m. That's when the sisters rise for their first of many rounds of prayer throughout the day. But the nuns also work. For Our Lady of the Angels, that means making sinfully good gouda cheese. People come from miles around to buy it. Here's Sister Maria describing the process.
10: I'm what we call the cheese cook, the one who does a part of the process of making the cheese, turning the the milk into cheese. Mm -hmm. So besides putting the culture and uh, all the things you have to put in there so that you get cheese at the end, most of the time we work in silence. So when we are working, uh, we are praying with our whole body. So... um, I do put a lot of prayers for the people (laughs) who are going to have the cheese, for so many people who ask us for uh, prayers, who tell us about their troubles in their families.
5: And just like any homeowners, Sister Kathy says they have to put a lot of work into simply maintaining the place.
1: So a lot of my time uh, during the day is um, either doing plumbing, calling a plumber. um, And that's where YouTube comes in handy, because there isn't anything you you need to fix that you can't find somebody doing it on YouTube.
5: (laughs) I have to admit, these nuns surprised me. They laughed at my jokes, unlike most people. They watched YouTube, and they had strong opinions about current issues like climate change. Sisters Kathy and Maria say they even surprised themselves by entering the convent.
10: I never thought about becoming a man. I didn't like nans too much. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Why do you say that?
10: Well, you know, I mean, we all have our own ideas of uh, what people do. And I mean, it, I wasn't the kind of person I thought that was going to be a nun.
1: I kind of had the same experience that Maria had. Um, it was kind of an oh-no kind of experience. <laughs> I, I never thought of cloistered life um, as, as being for me. Uh, I've always been you know, pretty active and enjoyed um, being in the world. But there were some clear th- messages um, that came. It just grew um, more and more in my heart that really the significance and importance of prayer in my life
5: I love writing history, but I will confess, if I could use that word, that there are days and sometimes even months where I have real doubts about my chosen life as an historian. None of you expressed any doubt about your faith itself. You've expressed doubt perhaps about being in the right place. Have you experienced those moments?
1: Sure. I think that's part of the Christian life. And uh, doubt is the flip side of faith. It's eventually what makes our faith even stronger. And uh, I remember saying to our superior that uh, I, I had finally reached a point where I was pretty certain that I was—what's um, what's the word for people who don't believe in God? Atheist, atheist. Atheist, Okay, I can't believe I can't remember these words, but but I told her I said, well, I I think I'm I'm, I think I'm atheist. I don't I don't think I believe in God anymore, and her simple response was, well, that's nice, (laughs) you know, it will pass. That's fine, and she's right, it does pass.
5: Two of you mentioned that when you realized that you were being called, your response was, uh oh. And given that that's a pretty typical reaction, or to put it another way, that this is an unusual form of life in this very modern society we live in, do you ever worry about the future? Do you worry about the continuation of this this way of life?
7: As far as worry, not worry. I think the monastic life will last as long as the humankind lives, because it speaks to something deep in the human heart. Maria was saying a few moments ago, this desire to give oneself totally to God and, and to receive as much of God as God will give in this life, to put it one way. But individual monasteries won't last forever. No no human institution just does, you know. And and that that doesn't matter. So um concern but not worry and The best contribution we can make to that is just living the life as fully with as much of our our love as as we can.
4: Thanks to Sisters Barbara, Sophie, Maria, and Kathy from Our Lady of the Angels a Trappist Monastery in Crozet, Virginia. You can find more information about the sisters, including how to purchase their handmade cheese, on their website, olamonastery.org.
5: Hey, Peter, Ed, yeah we're talking about the history of Catholics in America today and we got lots of comments on our website about uh, something that I certainly associate Catholics with that's parochial schools, right, right? right. And you know, parochial schools are set up, I'm assuming, uh, in contrast to those
0: secular public schools where prayer in the school is not allowed. Well, Brian, as you might guess, the story is just a little more complicated than that. There is no value-free, faith-free public education in the 18th and 19th century. The whole point of education, that is literacy, teaching kids how to read, is to read the Bible, and that would be the King James Bible. It's taken for granted by early common school reformers that this is going to be what's offered in schools. Effectively, it's It's a Protestant education, especially at a time when there are a large number of Catholic immigrants coming to America, particularly in New England, places like Massachusetts where the common school movement takes off under the leadership of Horace Mann. Is that like the 1840s
5: or 1850s, Peter?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, then there's a very self-conscious effort to Americanize, and that means to Protestantize. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and lots of local parents, uh, uh, Catholics, as soon as they can afford it—and and this is in a major effort of Catholic communities on a neighborhood, grassroots level—they uh, build churches, that's expensive. They build schools when they can, so that their kids will not be inculcated with these Protestant values.
4: And these are big political fights, you know, that yeah. people are saying— You cannot be inculcating a different religion than we believe in so-called public schools. Let us have our own schools. We will build on the great Catholic tradition of education. We know how to run schools. We will do it ourselves. All we want is the church and the state
5: to be separate. It seems like what you're saying is that it's the Catholics who give us separation of church and state. And I think one unintended consequence of
4: this braiding across American history of parochial schools and public schools and trying to figure out where the line is, is that when the segregation, integration crisis comes in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s, there's a kind of a space in which people... There's who, a model. Yeah, it, there is a model, which yeah, could there's, not there's, have there's been farther away from the Catholic intention or even the practice where they'd often been pioneering and offering schools in segregated areas. That's right. Now, segregation academies emerge up and use a kind of a space that the Catholics had
5: created for different purposes. That's right, Ed. And as the public schools become more secular, you know, these Protestant academies, uh, often all white, Mm -hmm. um, begin to really take off in the 1970s and 80s. And although they are formed for very different purposes, uh, in fact, an alliance between all faith-based schools uh, yeah, yeah. that begin to ask, well, why should all the public money go to public schools? That alliance becomes very powerful. And it's the only way to explain why today you have roughly 15 states or so who provide uh, tax relief to people who send their kids to private schools, and you have roughly 13 states that provide vouchers to parents who can send their kids anywhere, including Catholic schools. And a
4: kind of a final irony on all this is that the schools have become ever more divided, the public's become ever more secular, and the private schools become ever more religious. It's interesting how these things circle back in American history. For us to take another break. When we return, one pope calls on American Catholics to stop being so, well, American. You're listening to Backstory.
5: We'll be back in a minute. Hey there, podcast listeners. We've got a special project for you on our upcoming show on the ties between the U.S. and China. We recently ran a story on San Francisco's Chinatown and how it was reimagined as a tourist destination in the wake of fires in the early 20th century. And that's how many Americans view Chinatowns, as a stop on their tour of San Francisco, New York, or Philadelphia. But for our upcoming show, we want to look at Chinatowns across American cities through the eyes of those who work, live, and grew up there. So if you grew up in a Chinatown or live there now, tell us your story. What does the American Chinatown mean to you? What parts do tourists never get to see or simply misunderstand? You can leave a comment on our website, BackstoryRadio.org, or leave us a message at 434-206-1051. Feel free to get creative. Give us an audio tour of your Chinatown on your smartphone or have a family member walk us around. You can record your message and voice memo on your iPhone and email it to us at backstory at
0: This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onoff. I'm Brian Bellow. And I'm Ed Ayers. Today,
4: we're marking the Pope's arrival in the U.S. by exploring the history of American Catholicism. And much of that history revolves around the long road that American Catholics have traveled, from a feared and targeted minority in the 19th century to a fully
5: integrated fifth of the U.S. population. And one plot point in that transformation is a Vatican encyclical at the turn of the 20th century. An encyclical is a papal letter sent to bishops of the church and released to the public at large. You might remember when Pope Francis made headlines this summer with an encyclical condemning inaction on climate change. But in 1899, it was Pope Leo XIII who made headlines. His encyclical reprimanded American Catholics for what he called the heresy of Americanism.
2: In its broadest sense, it meant um, an attitude that said, I have individual rights.
5: This is historian Maura Farrelly. She says that Pope Leo feared American Catholics were being corrupted by living in a predominantly Protestant country. American culture, he felt, was too individualistic. Throughout the 19th century, famous American priests like Isaac Hecker and Orestes Bronson had been imploring their flock to embrace American values. Pope Leo had a decidedly different take.
2: The Pope felt that this mentality that stresses your rights as an individual had the potential to create a number of what he called dangers. And so at one point in the encyclical, he says, these dangers, that is, the confounding of license with liberty, the passion for discussing and pouring contempt upon any possible subject, the assumed right to hold whatever opinions one pleases upon any subject and set them forth in print to the world, have so wrapped minds in darkness that there is now a greater need of the church's teaching office than ever before, lest people become unmindful of both conscience and duty.
5: That's pretty tough stuff for Americans.
2: Yeah, and if you think about those things that he's concerned about, he describes the right to hold an opinion and to put it in print and share it with the world as a danger. I mean, that just grates on an American's nerves. It grates on our nerves today, and it grated on the nerves of most Americans in the 19th century as well. So maybe this would help
5: us, from a modern perspective today, understand a bit more who was the ideal American Catholic as Pope Leo saw it.
2: Yeah, so basically you were supposed to see your priest as your guider and your confessioner for for pretty much every behavior that you engaged in, whether it was raising your family or casting a political vote. And what he was looking for was... The kinds of Catholics who settled in Catholic neighborhoods and sent their children exclusively to Catholic schools and maybe gravitated toward occupations that were also dominated by other Catholics such that they would never really be mixing with Protestants and their dangerous ideas about individual rights.
5: But didn't that just play into a lot of American prejudice against Catholics? Isn't this just the kind of thing that— uh, nativists uh, were worried about?
2: Absolutely, it did. And, and that's why people like Orestes Bronson and Isaac Hecker, who, by the way, were native born Americans who both used to be Protestants, that's the reason they stood so staunchly against
5: oh, the see. Catholic
2: Church's teachings on this subject.
5: Uh huh. And what specifically were they saying to American Catholics?
2: So Orestes Bronson, after he became Catholic, he started really paying attention to who made up the Catholic population, who were his co-religionists now in the United States. And surprise, surprise, he found out that they were a bunch of immigrants, primarily from (laughs) Ireland. And so he he had a journal in which he would write frequently to his fellow Catholics. And he would urge them to change their behavior and, and to stop being so parochial and to stop being so deferential. He felt that the destiny, the true destiny of America was to become Catholic because he felt that Catholicism was the truth. It was right. It was just. It was what God wanted. But he also felt that Catholics themselves were not representing the Catholic faith very well in the United States.
5: (laughs) And apparently not representing it very well because they were listening to the word of the Pope.
2: Exactly. They were being the sort of Catholic that the Pope was saying they should be, and Orestes (laughs) Bronson was saying, no, you need to be a different kind of Catholic. You need to be an American Catholic.
5: Well, I could see why the Pope would be a little upset about this.
2: Absolutely.
5: Well, how did Catholics in the United States react to this encyclical?
2: Well, the reality is that although there were a few very prominent Catholics who were advocating what the Pope called Americanism and were therefore being condemned by the Pope, those prominent Catholics were in the minority. And the vast majority of Catholics at that point in time were not advocating sort of the freewheeling qualities that people like Hecker and Orestes Bronson had been advocating. And so one of the ironies of the encyclical is that Catholics in America at the tail end of the 19th century were actually far less, quote unquote, American, as Leo is defining the term. But certainly it was in the water in America. There certainly was a
5: danger of what he was worried about.
2: Absolutely. So what is this controversy
5: about Americanism that we've been discussing? What does that reveal about being Catholic in America?
2: I think it highlights some of the tension uh, that exists naturally uh, between a focus on the rights of the individual and a focus on the obligations to the community. And the American mentality is an extraordinarily individualistic mentality, and it is very much focused upon the rights of the individual. Whereas the Catholic mentality is a communal mentality, and it is focused upon the obligations that people have to their community. And so I think the Americanist crisis really highlights that struggle that Catholics in America had as Americans to be both good Catholics and good Americans. How do we reconcile these two aspects of our identity? Thanks
5: to Maura Farrelly, a professor of American Studies at Brandeis University. She's the author of Papist Patriots, The Making of an American Catholic Identity.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Backstory, and today we're exploring the long history of Catholics in America. Some of those tensions we just heard about between the American Church and the Vatican
4: were resolved in 1965 during a conference of sweeping reforms known as Vatican II. Officials in Rome took their cues from American clerics to embrace religious pluralism. This step, along with other reforms, signaled a more modern church. And according to some scholars, for the first time the council officially accepted the separation of church and state. Before Vatican II, that separation was a contentious issue, especially for Catholics who sought elected
5: office here in the U.S. Take John F. Kennedy. In 1960, he was only the second Roman Catholic presidential candidate in American history. His faith was a huge issue. Protestants, particularly in the South, worried that Kennedy would put the interests of the Vatican ahead of the interests of the United States.
8: That is, that the Pope will be calling the shots.
5: This is Barbara Perry, director of the Presidential Studies Institute at the University of Virginia's Miller Center.
8: Not just the pope, head of the Catholic Church, but the pope, this foreign monarch, uh, will be attempting to take over the United States if there is a Catholic president.
5: Angst about papal influence ran so high that Protestant leaders, including prominent minister Norman Vincent Peel, held an anti-Kennedy conference and drafted a public statement warning voters of the perils of electing a Catholic president
8: because Catholics are taught that the pope is infallible in matters of faith and morals. Well, to the extent that any public policy issues sloshed over into faith or certainly had anything to do with morals, the viewpoint would be among non-Catholics or anti-Catholics that we can't possibly vote for this John Kennedy a Catholic because he will have to call the shots in the Oval Office based on what the pope is saying in the Vatican.
11: So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again Not what kind of church I believe in, for that should be important only to me, but what kind of America I believe
5: in. This is Kennedy addressing a group of mostly Southern Baptist clergymen in September 1960, less than a week after Peel and his colleagues released their manifesto. In a five-minute speech, Kennedy faced the issue head-on with this message.
11: I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him, Are the people who might elect him.
5: This is all a few years before Vatican II, where the church will officially change its position on the separation of church and state. How possible was it for JFK to state the beliefs we just heard and still maintain that he was a Catholic in good standing?
8: First of all, he did attend Mass every Sunday. He was... Uh, According to his wife's oral history, he prayed every night before he retired. Uh, but that was his private life. As he said, he was keeping his private faith uh, private. What he was trying to do was keep the Catholics on board, but he's also, this is this is solely focused on the Protestants. So this is the time to defend himself, to go on the defense. And the fact of the matter is, he did have a record that was easy to defend, because as he points out, he was not for those things that perhaps other Catholic priests and perhaps other Catholic office holders were for, or that the Pope or the bishops or the Cardinals would have liked him to be for.
5: I'd like to play one more clip for you and get your reaction to it. Here's JFK talking about the history of religious freedom in America. Take a listen.
11: This is the kind of America I believe in. And this is the kind of America I fought for in the South Pacific and the kind my brother died for in Europe. No one suggested then that we might have a divided loyalty, that we did not believe in liberty, or that we belonged to a disloyal group that threatened, I quote, the freedom for which our forefathers died. And in fact, this is the kind of America for which our forefathers did die. And when they fought at the shrine, I visited today, the Alamo. Besides
8: when I he side said to these pockets, people, probably most of whom had fought in World War II or at least been in the service, he said, nobody asked me when I went off to fight in the South Pacific what my religion was. And then he tied in the Alamo and he said, Here's some names of the people who <laughs> now fought Kennedy in the Kennedy
5: did not fight in the Alamo. He did not, I, fight, I he
8: did not fight in the Alamo. And, and you might say, boy, this is really pulling out all the stops to go to Houston and talk about the Alamo. But by using these very poignant analogies and metaphors and bringing in American civic culture and civic uh, monuments, uh, and monuments to the very freedom that these people were fighting for, he was able to make the case. And this speech turned around Protestant leaders like Norman Vincent Peale, who were satisfied by it. Now, really? Again,
5: did they, Did he yes, acknowledge that publicly? Yes, and
8: Billy Graham as well.
5: Barbara, earlier in the show, we heard that as late as the end of the 19th century, Pope Leo was deeply critical about individual Catholics making decisions about the separation of church and state. From a Catholic perspective, how shocking was JFK's insistence that he believed in a pure separation of church and state? I mean, how revolutionary was that among
8: Catholics
5: in 1960?
8: My parents, both very devout Catholics, believed very, very strictly in separation of church and state, in fact, to the point where they did not discuss their religion with their non-Catholic friends. And I think that that is what Kennedy represents in this speech. And some who have written on the history of the Catholic Church in the United States have pointed out that things like World War II, which brought together people of all different faiths uh, in the fighting forces, uh, as well as the G.I. Bill, which brought people of all different ethnic groups and nationalities together into the college campus atmosphere. I think that's very much what my parents, part of the greatest generation, they were the same age as Kennedy. I think that that's what he was representing. So I think it didn't come as a shock. That's
5: Pope Leo's greatest fear. Indeed. That's the Americanization of the Catholic Church. Indeed.
8: And the fact that we know that Kennedy got 83 percent of the Catholic vote um, means that not everyone followed him. But he did that, and he also got about a third of the Protestant vote. And in that very, very tight election uh, that came down to a matter of 0.1 percent in the popular vote, that mattered.
5: Was Kennedy's election a turning point for Catholics in politics, or did Catholics have to continue— to prove that they were just as American as their Protestant opponents?
8: Well, the good news, I think, for Catholics is that that election makes them, I believe, come into the mainstream of American political culture. And it also means that the Irish Catholic uh, element that Kennedy, of course, was 100 percent a part of um, seemed much less foreign now. And so we might note that the very separationism that I believe reached its zenith for Kennedy's election, for his nomination, for his speeches, and for the presentation of himself, uh, is very much uh, a part of his time when, in 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court would ban organized prayer from the public schools. So really, Kennedy is reflecting that time, and we have had an intervening variable of the moral majority of the right, um, the evangelical Christian movement, uh, and now conservative Catholics running for the presidency. So the separationism of the Kennedy years is really gone, in some ways, uh, in Catholicism as well as in our political culture.
5: Thanks to Barbara Perry, director of the Presidential Studies Institute at the University of Virginia's Miller Center.
0: That's going to do it for us today, but we'll be waiting for you online. Let us know what you thought of today's show. While you're there, send us your questions for our upcoming episodes. We've got shows on the history of China-U.S. relations, populism, and disability in America. You'll find it all at BackstoryRadio.org or send email to backstory@virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is
4: produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Kelly Jones, Emily Gaddick, and Bruce Wallace. Jamal Milner is our engineer. Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Wyndham.
5: Major support for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day.
10: Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.
7: Backstory is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange.